This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. We are moving, as you see in the first few verses here, um, into the point, the, the very end of Jesus' uh, ministry, life, uh, as, as uh, it, his uh, life here is the incarnate word. Um, it's coming now to the time of his crucifixion, which we just uh, commemorated last week, and the resurrection. If you look at verse 1, um, Jesus is again telling his disciples what is about to come. This is the fourth time that Jesus has predicted uh, his, his death and resurrection in the book of Matthew. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And that word that's translated as a phrase here, delivered up, is, is actually going to be a key word in this, uh, in this um, chapter. I'll, I'll try to point it out to you as we go. It's translated differently in some different places, but the same word is repeatedly used here by Matthew. And it's a common word, so it's used um, in various places. But again and again in this account that was just read by, by David. And I, I mentioned Jesus has predicted um, four times what was coming here with his suffering and death um, er, fairly early on, beginning to tell the disciples what was going to happen. And as you recall, it wasn't exactly received well, especially in Matthew 16 when he was rebuked by Jesus. But the four times were these, if, if, if you want to make note of them. Matthew 16:21, um, And again, that's the, that's the case where he was rebuked by Peter for saying such a thing. And then, and then consequently, Peter was rebuked. For not, uh, for, for not savoring the things of God, having his mind set on the things of God rather than the things of men. Second time was Matthew 17, 22, and 23. And then again in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. And then here in chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. So Jesus is fully aware of what he's facing. And now he even gives the time frame. Two days. After two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's not, he's not going into this ignorant. He knows what He's come to do, and He's, he's prepared to face it, and He's preparing um, the disciples for the same thing. So the whole context here and what we're reading about is the suffering, death, resurrection of Christ. The ministry of the Messiah. That is why He came. Not as, not as some supposed that he, that he would come in glory and honor and power. He will. But not at this time. This wasn't the time. This time He was to come humbly. This time He was to come to deal with our sin and to conquer sin and death. As Matthew says, this is following um, Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. And now, He is again facing, um, very soon, the cross. Verse 3, 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Remember, this is only a few days after Jesus rode into Jerusalem um, with everybody praising and laying their, their garments and palm branches before him. So, at, and, and, and by the way, a lot of that was due to the fact that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So right now, he, he has a great deal of popularity. And so if you're wondering why the, the uh, Jews are plotting uh, in a stealthful manner, it's because they fear the people. Who and, and this again never ceases to never ceases to astound me how the crowd can go from being so favorable to shouting crucify him um, in such a sharp manner of time. It's astounding, but we'll we'll see that happen as as we continue on. But at this point, he's enjoying a great deal of favor. And uh, that, that's why the Jews are cautious. So verse 4 again, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So their intentions were um, to wait till after the feast. Now that cannot happen uh, for a couple of reasons. <laughs> Mainly because Jesus just said it's going to happen during the feast. So even those who are plotting to kill him are not, are not um, thinking that it's going to be that soon. He knows it's going to be that soon. He knows when it's going to be. Uh, just, just further evidence that um, in all of these events, God is in control. God is sovereignly moving, orchestrating events according to His own will and purpose. Now, I need to mention this too, because you may have noticed in some other accounts that uh, Aunt, the high priest Annas is mentioned. Uh, that's the uh, father-in-law of uh, Caiaphas, and he preceded Caiaphas as a high priest. He was probably uh, what would really be called the rightful high priest. Uh, Caiaphas was appointed by by the uh, the Romans, um, but at any rate, he's still recognized here as as high priest. But their 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 service, uh, their lives overlap. So Annas is still alive. In fact, Jesus was taken uh, taken before him as part of the trial process, or at least what they, uh, a mockery of a trial is more of a way of putting it. But Jesus was taking, taken before Annas and then to Caiaphas. But here you find Caiaphas with the other Jews plotting for his death. Now, again, that all sets the stage for us. So we know where we're at. We're, we're coming to the sufferings of Christ. The long-awaited, long-anticipated Jewish Messiah has come. But for some... He's been a disappointment because things haven't played out the way that they thought they should. For others, a Savior. (laughs) Fresh air, fresh word, fresh breath from God. And so we're going to see that contrast here. question comes to mind as I've thinking about these next verses that we're about to, to move through, just for a little personal application. Um, how would you like to be remembered? How would you like to be remembered? Um, that, that's, that's something that I think, um, generally speaking, 
Maybe it's a universal rule. That's something that, that really uh, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about, typically. And different people have different ideas of what it would mean to be remembered well. But everybody wants pretty much to be remembered well. Uh, even if your idea of that is uh, to be a famous bank robber, <laughs> you know, you, you've, got, you've got some concept of how what you think is favorable for, for people to remember you. And we've all heard, you know, famous epitaphs. I, years ago, I was reading a, uh, this was kind of stuck with me. Uh, he's not dead yet, by the way. He's still, the, the guy that I'm about to refer to is still alive. But uh, he said this, this has probably been 30 years ago. I was reading a, a biography of Willie Nelson. And uh, he, had, he had made an appearance at some church. I don't even remember where it was. <coughs> and they, kind of, they did sort of an interview afterwards where they just, he sang, and then they talked a little bit. And the pastor asked him, I believe it was the pastor that was interviewing him, asked um, that question, how would, you, how would you like to be remembered? How would you like people to remember you? And his answer was, um, well, just tell them I meant well. Just tell them I meant well. Now, as I said, uh, that's, that pretty much, we, we all want to be remembered well. Whether it's by our intentions or certain things we've achieved or accomplished. And, and here's the thing. In some sense, we are all going to be remembered, or at least our, our works, what our life has been about. It's not going to be forgotten. It's going to be forgotten by people. Some of us will live and die maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now. It'll be almost as though we never existed. In other words, the... The world's not going to stop. The country's not going to crumble because we're gone. Our jobs, those things will continue on. But before the Lord, and in the mind of God, what we've done, what we are, what we were, if we're going to look back on our whole life, will be remembered. That also is astounding to me. You know, we live in an age where you've got to watch what you say and do. Because everybody's got cameras and recorders <laughs> today. Sometimes that's a great blessing. You know, they catch a police officer in the middle of police brutality and they're able to prove it. Or something to that effect, you know. Just a just an interesting news story, and somebody catches it on video. Sometimes it's not so much a blessing. How how would you like it, for example, if everything you said and did was recorded, put on video, and displayed for everybody else to watch? Well, we probably wouldn't like that. And yet, I think that's essentially what the scripture says is going to happen. That is. Every idle word we speak 
is recorded in a sense, maybe not by Sony or a Kodak, but by the Lord. And he doesn't miss any of it. He's got it all down. It's all going to be remembered. I was thinking just the other day, I was watching Jordan, you know, fiddling around with, she's got a little cell phone. It's not even a smartphone or anything like that. It's, a, it's a, I guess, a dumb phone. Designed for people, designed for people like me, you know. Um, but uh, it's, of course, it's, she was playing with it, singing, recording herself. It's got the voice recorder, got the camera, take pictures. I was thinking about all the stuff that we used to buy and lug around to be able to do those things, <laughs> you know, tape recorder this big with a microphone, and, uh, and then you had to have your, you know, your little Browning or, or Kodak Instamatic camera, and all separate instruments. Eight-track tape player, of course. Um, but they've got all that now in one device. Well, here's, here's the thing. We're going to see a couple of examples in, these, in the passage that David just read that we're looking at of people who are remembered. Now, again, in one sense, this is going to be the case with all of us. So, so we need to... We need to learn from, you know, pay attention here and learn from this, because in one sense, this is going to be the case with all of us. That is, before God, in the mind of God, we're all going to be remembered. He's, he's not going to forget. He knows what we're all about from beginning to end. He knows the very depths of our heart. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Every sin we commit, He sees. He's got the full... Linked video of it. He doesn't miss one second of it. He's got it from every angle, even when it comes to motives and intentions. He knows our very hearts. He, he, when the sin is not even committed, but it's still inside of us, God sees it perfectly and knows all about it. And on the other hand, those who uh, are in Christ and are spent for the glory of God, again, it's not unnoticed. It's all done in God's view. Now, the two people we're going to read about here, um, they're remembered in a little different way than you and I, nevertheless, will all be remembered. But there is a contrast here that I want to uh, focus in on between this woman in the first few verses, who is remembered well, and between another that is remembered not so well. Verse 6 is about an anointing, or Jesus is anointed with oil by a woman um, in Bethany. Now, this happened, I think, at least twice, okay? Um, once in Galilee, which is recorded by Luke in Luke 7. Once in Bethany, which we have recorded here. It's also recorded by Mark and John. Mark 14, John chapter 12. So, Matthew, Mark, and John seems to me are recording the same event. Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, John 12, and Luke 
And this is really the reason I mention this, in case you've read these and wondered if all these are talking about the same thing. And the, the event in Luke 7, I believe, is a totally different event. The details are very different. It is true that the host in both cases is a man named Simon. But even the details of, of, of the man are different. In, in Luke, he's called a Pharisee, Simon a Pharisee. And the picture you've got there is a, uh, uh, you know, a well-to-do uh, esteemed person invites Jesus into his home and invites uh, many others to come. In this event, um, he's a leper, verse 6. Simon the leper. So, uh, and I won't go through it all, but there, there are a lot of differences in details. The woman in John 7 is called a, a sinner, you know, meaning she has a, a, obviously an odious lifestyle. Um, and she's anointing Jesus out of great gratitude. And Jesus, you know, says you're forgiven of your sins. Here, uh, this is uh, according to John. Again, assuming this is the same event John records. This is Mary the sister of Lazarus. And uh, um, what she's doing, probably also out of a great deal of gratitude, but it is also serving as, as an anointing, a preparation for his burial. So between Luke 7 and the other, three, uh, the other three accounts, Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12, there are a great deal of differences. So I, I think we've got at least two different um, events here. So, um, here Jesus is at Bethany. One other, one other thing I want to point out as, as far as uh, some differences in detail. John has this happening um, before his triumphant entry. Now, Matthew and Mark have it following the triumphant entry two days before Passover. And I'm just going to be real quick here, and you can go back and, and double-check it uh, on yourself, but... Uh, look for just a moment at John 12. <clears throat> and there are a couple of uh, different ideas of, of, of how to solve the difficulty here. I'm going to give you one, and like I say, you can double-check it yourself. Um, look at John 12. One, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. All right, notice we read in Matthew, um, it's two days before. John says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of uh, expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. All right, so John, it seems to me, clearly says it was six days before the Passover. So that was prior to the triumphant entry. Jesus was at Bethany, um, and he was back and forth from Jerusalem to, to Bethany over the last week. Um, but Jesus was at Bethany, and, and Mary anointed him. Now, back in Matthew, Matthew says it this way. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was at Bethany, and, and, and Mark records it similarly. And what I'm suggesting is this. I, I don't think what Matthew is doing here is he's doing chronologically. I think it's more of a thematic move. Um, now he's come to talk about the crucifixion, and he's, he's dealing with that things in that context. So I, I don't think he's moving chronologically um, through these first few verses of chapter 26. 
So in, in verse 1, or verse 2 rather, he says, uh, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. He's only two days away from the Passover. But you get down to verse 6, Matthew says, now when Jesus was at Bethany. So I don't think he's saying this immediately follows Jesus' comments in 26. He's just going back to a thought about something that happened with Jesus while he was at Bethany. So it appears to me that the chronology is, is uh, the correct chronology would be John's account. All right? Now, if you read some different commentaries, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna find that other people have different views, okay? <laughs> but this one, that appears to be correct to me. So that's the only one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with. So now, if this is the case, if I'm right about that, this is kind of a flashback. And Matthew's recalling what happened when Jesus was in the home of Simon the leper, probably healed by Jesus. Uh, we're not told that specifically, but uh, you think about this. The, the Passover is about to happen, and they're in the home of a leper. Um, they, they would all be ceremonial, ceremonially unclean if he were still a leper. So I think it's probably safe to assume that he was a leper. You know, he was known as Simon the leper, but now he's been healed by Jesus, which would probably account for the reason he's in his home, too. In other words, like, uh, like, like Mary, uh, he'd just be full of gratitude and, you know, come and dine at my house. So Jesus is at Bethany, the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. Uh, this is very soon after he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And he's in the home of Simon the leper. And a woman came. Now, Matthew just simply says a woman. John tells us it's Mary, the, the, uh, the sister of Lazarus. A woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Now, you, you know, if you're 21st century American, you're saying, of course they were indignant. I mean, somebody comes and pours oil on my head, I'm going to be upset too. Uh, but that's not what they were indignant about. In fact, it was uh, the, the, the anointing, the pouring of the oil was customary. Um, in fact, in one place in Luke, uh, uh, Jesus, in fact, it's, uh, as I mentioned, Luke 7, Jesus uh, basically re- rebukes his host there and the others for not doing that. When, when Simon the Pharisee says, he sees this other woman washing Jesus' feet, and he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. In other words, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus goes on to give a lesson about being forgiven and gratitude that flows from being forgiven of much. And he gives somewhat of an indictment to those who were there saying, you did not anoint my head, implying that they should have. It was customary. It was a way of showing honor. And uh, you know something else that, that, that comes to mind when I see these things? Here, in uh, another place we find Martha serving. Luke 12, I just read, Martha is serving. In another place we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in Luke 12, we find Mary, and, and also here we find Mary anointing His head and washing His feet. And when I see these things, these kinds of, 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 of service and, and uh, acts of adoration, I think, where are the men? 
Where are the men? Isn't it funny that it seems to be primarily women? I mean, it continues on. We're going to see it again when we get to the resurrection. Who is, who is rushing down to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus on the third day? It's the women. Interesting, interesting note, and maybe, a, maybe an extra, uh, maybe an extra admonition for uh, all of us who are men, <clears throat> that because we're not so quick to express adoration or to serve, oftentimes as women are. So when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? Now, they're mad because the oil that she's using is extremely expensive. It's, it's, it's worth about a year's wage for a common day worker. So, whatever you would say that is today, just on an, on an average level, what's an average laborer's um, uh, yearly annual wage? And I, I'm, you know, I don't know, what, 30000 or maybe let's just say for a round, rough figure. So, if, so, if somebody came in and poured oil on Heath's head, oil that was worth $30,000, we would go, wow, what a waste. You know, I mean, nothing against Heath, but I mean, we just think, you know, we'd be like them. We, couldn't we have taken that and sold it and fed some poor, poor people? That, that's, what they're, that's what they're mad about. They've got some good intentions. Some of them do. They were indignant. Maybe, maybe we could call it righteous indignation. At least um, they're thinking it is. Saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Now, we know that it would have probably never made it to the poor because Judas kept the money bag and Judas was a thief. So even if they had done that, the poor would have not seen most of it anyway. But Jesus, aware of this, verse 10, here's the thing that might be kind of shocking for us, because we, we might expect Jesus at this point to stand up and say, you know what, you're right. You're right. She's, she's just wasted a whole year's worth of, of pay here. What could have been a year's worth of pay. We could have sold that, that, that bottle, that flask, and the ointment, and made again what might be today the equivalent of thirty or $40,000. We, we could have sold that, and we could have done a lot of good with that. We could have fed a lot of people, donated a lot of money. That's not what he says. He says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now, I don't know... Whether Mary had any intentions of doing that or not, she probably didn't. She's probably just being grateful, just thankful, just wanting to express her love. But according to Jesus, it was preparation for his burial. A little quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon here. She probably did not know all that her action meant when she anointed her Lord for His burial. The consequences of the simplest action done for Christ may be much greater than we think. Go thou, my sister, and do what God bids thee, and it shall be seen that thou hast done far more than thou knowest. 
Obey the holy impulse within thy spirit, my brother, and thou mayest do ten thousand times more than thou hast ever imagined to be possible. So, you know, sometimes we're just doing some little thing that we don't think that much of out of great love for the Lord, and we would probably be amazed at how God might use that. I don't know that she had any idea she was anointing him for his death. She's just expressing love. She's just expressing love. Even if she does know she's doing it for his death, she's still expressing love. And that's the important thing here. She is openly the same one who was willing to sit at Jesus' feet and hear His Word, to choose that good thing that Jesus assured her would not be taken from her. She's expressing her love for Christ. Now, I do want to make a distinction here, just in case you run out and buy a $30,000 bottle of oil and pour it on somebody's head. I want you to know it's not going to have the same significance. <laughs> Why is that? Um, we would have to be very, very, very careful in, in trying to do something similar. I know we talk about building buildings for the glory of God and, and uh, you know, doing great things, you know, building great ministries for the glory of God and so on and so forth. But we really, really, really got to be careful in, in trying to use this as a justification to spend money somewhere other than Let's say feeding the poor, like Jesus says, are reaching the lost. Why is that? Well, because what she's doing here is not just for the Lord. It's directly to the Lord. I mean, physically, which is an opportunity you and I don't have. I mean, if you had right, right now, if you had a $30,000 bottle of pure nard in a flask, you can't pour it on the Lord's head and wash His feet. And see, that's exactly what He's saying here. You, you have the poor with you always, but you will not always have Me. He's saying this is, this is a one-time thing. This is unique. She's doing something for my burial. And it's justified for a couple of reasons. One is that the significance is found in it's a preparation for His burial. And the other, of course, being that Jesus is deserving. He's always deserving. It it wouldn't have even had the same meaning had she poured it on Peter or John or you or me. The Lord is worthy of that kind of adoration. Now, I point out all that because you remember just in the last chapter, Jesus stressed greatly Doing things for people, serving people, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting those in prison and, and the infirmed and so forth. Jesus stressed that greatly. He's not, he's not contradicting that here. But He is worthy of what she is doing. And He's saying, you're going to have plenty of opportunity to do those other things. I'm only here for a short time. Now, look at verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, 
in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That that is an, an astounding thing to me. You see these advertisers. They I've, I've seen you know they sometimes they use stickers even they'll they'll put it right on the front page of the newspaper. And if not that, then they at least use the you know the familiar inserts that every everybody loves. You know they're good for bird cages and puppies that you're training and all that kind of thing. Um, but the idea is you know wherever that newspaper goes. The ad for my company is going to go, right? And I get some advertising. Now, I'm not suggesting this is advertising. Jesus is not um, making an idol out of this woman or anything like that. But it's just a fascinating thing to me that he's attaching her act of adoration here to the gospel in such a way that he's saying, wherever the gospel goes and is preached, what she's done is going to be known about. She's going to be remembered for what she's done this day. It's what Jesus is saying. While, while all of you sit around and criticize her and talk about better ways to spend the money, know this, that what she has done is going to be declared everywhere the Gospel goes. Throughout the whole world. And I don't think it's... I don't think it's because of uh, the nature of the oil, though it was very expensive. It's because of the nature of her act, because of her heart, it's because of her adoration for Jesus. It's because what she's doing here is an expression of her love for Christ. Well, that only if only all of them were such, uh, you know, had good examples or good endings. But the next one doesn't is not so good. There's a great contrast here between what the woman has just done and what Judas Iscariot is about to do. And notice that word then. And I think this is precisely what Matthew's doing here. He's giving us this. Contrast, and again, we've seen it over and over and over, haven't we? In the parables, and even in uh, the judgment day warnings of Jesus, this contrast of those who truly love the Lord and those who don't. The genuine and the pretenders. Those who accept, those who reject. So, Matthew relates this beautiful story of this woman anointing Jesus for His burial and says, Then, then one of the twelve. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. That, that is one of the most troubling things about this whole account of Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve. And you think about, it, it's, it sounds strange to even say it this way, but you, you think about the life and ministry of Judas Iscariot. 
Of course, we don't know much about his life, but we know a little bit, a great deal about that uh, period, roughly three and a half years or so that he was following Jesus. And there's, other than the fact that we're told he's the betrayer, he's the son of perdition, in terms of just doing what the twelve did, there's never a distinction made between Judas and the others. I mean, it doesn't say the eleven went out and preached the gospel in all of the villages, and Judas just hung out and goofed off. Or he went out telling everybody how rotten Jesus was. He's always there. He's one of the twelve. So when Jesus sends out the twelve, gives them power and authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel, we're never given any indication that Jesus didn't, that Judas rather didn't do all of that. In fact, I think to the contrary, wouldn't it be obvious to the others? I mean, if he wasn't doing any of that, if he didn't look like a follower of Jesus, then when it comes down to the, to the final feast here, all this questioning, is it I, is it I, is it I, that wouldn't be going on. Everybody would have been saying, we know who that is. Judas. The Lord says, somebody's, somebody's going to betray me this night. Judas. Everybody knows that's Judas. They didn't. They didn't know. He's one of the twelve. Every indication of thing, he, he was doing what they were doing. He looked just like one of them. Judas, one of the twelve, then went to the chief priest. And by the way, part of the reason for that was because he was one of the ones most indignant, not with righteous indignation, And so now, it's like this is the final straw. He doesn't like the direction of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't like what Jesus is doing. This is not the kind of Messiah He expected. So, He went to the chief priest in verse 15 and said, What will you give me if I deliver Him over to you? Now, that phrase, deliver over, that's the same word that Jesus used back in verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up or delivered over. We, would, we might say handed over. It's used in verse 2, in verse 15, in verse 16, in verse 21, in verse 23, in verse 24, 25, in verse 45, 46, and 48. It's translated delivered or delivered up or delivered over. In some of the cases, it's translated betray, like verse 16. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to deliver him up or deliver him over, to betray him. Now, that's what's going on. So, what's at work here? You've got one working to betray, and on the other hand, this... Lavish expression of love. 
Verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city, a certain man, go and go into a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And I'm going to talk more about that tonight, Lord willing, so I'm not, I'm not going to uh, uh, go into detail here about the Passover or, or explaining what they're doing here, uh, except to say that um, it, it, was a, it was a meal commemorating their deliverance from Egypt that they had kept throughout the centuries, observed annually throughout the centuries. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. There's the the word again. Deliver up, deliver over. One of you will deliver me over. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me or deliver me up. Son of man goes as it is written of him. He's meaning to death, to suffer. The Son of Man goes to suffer and to die. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed or delivered, delivered over. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Now, I I assume all the others were really questioning and they, they, in other words, they, they were all saying, is it I? And they are really questioning that in their hearts, apparently. Judas is already making arrangements. He knows. He knows who it is. But again, isn't it interesting that they don't? He's one of the twelve. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Just a way of affirmation. Yes, it's you. And in another account, he says, go and do what you do quickly. Now, it doesn't explicitly say here about Judas that wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what he has done will also be told. That is true, isn't it? Got the actions of two people. Like we've been talking about in Sunday school, their actions flow from their heart. So what you're really seeing is a manifestation of the hearts of two different people. And they're both remembered. What we, what we do 
here and now has eternal consequences. In fact, I can just say it this way. Our affection for Jesus, or lack of it, whichever is the case, our affection for Jesus, our adoration of Jesus, our gratefulness, our thankfulness to Jesus, or lack of it, has eternal consequences. It will always be remembered. So how would you like to be remembered? If you could interject yourself into this story, would you play the part of Judas? Or would you play the part of Mary? Is your heart filled with love and adoration and gratitude to Jesus <laughs> that, that you would just like to express Or has, has He been a disappointment? Has He not met your expectations? Have you thought, as you read the Scripture maybe, or as you heard the Gospel preach, this is not my idea of the Savior? Do you love Him? Or do you despise Him? Whichever is the case, it will manifest in your life. And in my life. Whichever is the case with me, it will manifest in my life. And it brings with it eternal consequences. How would you like to be remembered? Let's stand. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80. Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.